I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, really, you can include the last few verses of 52 in that. The sermon notes in your bulletin will be a big help to you, of course, uh, in terms of keeping track of where we're going. Um, Back in the mid-1500s, it's when a, a doctrinal statement or a confession was written called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of three main um, confessions of faith uh, that belong to the Christian church. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, was revised a bit over the years, and um, there's one, one of the statements in it that I want to remember with you. Now, uh, as many catechism-type uh, documents do, it uses the Socratic method of asking a question and then an answer is provided. So ideally in a classroom, the teacher asks a question and you, the student, can just say, here's the answer. So I want to read you one of these and it will lead us in the direction of where we want to go this morning. So the question is, what is the only comfort in life and death? And here is the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. How's that for an answer? What is your only hope in life and in death? And all of it centers back to Jesus Christ and his work. Now, this morning we come to uh, Isaiah 53, a poem that begins at chapter 52, verse 13, and continues through 53. This is a text that for me is very much like stepping into the Holy of Holies. Uh, you, you do so with much thought and preparation of heart and without being just casual and careless. Now, this, this is a text, as you see in front of you into the section called today's text. Some have called this the most important scripture in the Old Testament. Can you imagine? That's a big statement. Not necessarily the most well-known or most memorized. That would be Psalm 23 or something like that. But, but for some, would see the most important text in the Old Testament. Interesting. Another writer would say, nowhere in the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus Christ shine more clearly than in Isaiah 53. And I would suggest, uh, if, you, if you're a person who reads the Bible, um, if, you, if you know Christ as your Savior in particular, Isaiah 53 is a text you really should know. You should, you'll recognize some parts of it. It's all over the New Testament. And it's our privilege to take a look at it today. So what I want to do is, is pray and ask God to help us with this. number of introductory remarks and some structural things I'll talk about. And, and then I just want to work through uh, 15 verses with you and see what God will do with that in our hearts today. But would you pray with me? Our Father, as always, we find it a great joy to open the Word of God together we, we do that um, not casually or carelessly, and certainly today as we come to this text, 
that is, is so much of a key part of, of New Testament thought and theology, our understanding of the work of Christ. Father, would you capture our hearts today uh, with, with the beauty of Jesus, with the glory of Christ, the suffering servant, in such a way that we would, we would be drawn, O oh God, to you in worship and adoration and in obedience. So use your word, empowered by your spirit, for your purposes today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Isaiah 53, uh, of course, just a few things by way of introduction to it in terms of the whole of Scripture. Isaiah 53 is the text that you read about in Acts chapter 8 that the Ethiopian man was reading in the chariot as he was heading back to to Ethiopia. We've referenced the story not that long ago in a sermon, but he was reading Isaiah 53, and he asked the right question, which was, of whom does the prophet speak? Is it of himself or another? And God had prepared Philip the evangelist to go meet this man. Uh, Talk about a divine appointment. How could that have been set up? But Philip was there and heard the man reading and is from the scroll of Isaiah 53. And so the man asks that question of Philip, and you read this. Philip, from this scripture, told him the good news of Jesus. So already at that time, believers, followers of Jesus, had identified Isaiah 53 as telling the story of Jesus. That was right in the early church. They had already said that Old Testament text is telling the story of Jesus. It's the gospel 700 years ago. Now, in the New Testament, there are a couple of other stories. Um, one is Jesus on the, on the road to Emmaus, walking with a couple of, of disciples. This found in Luke 24, uh, two, two people, Cleopas and some other guy who's not named. But they're, they're, they're walking toward Emmaus, and that's a little town over there in, in Israel, and they're deeply troubled. They, they, they were followers of Jesus, their master, and they, he, he, he had made promises about restoring Israel and all these things, and they thought, man, now's the time. And then he died. I mean, he was crucified on this wicked cross, and their hopes were dashed. And then they heard these rumors of resurrection. I mean, who does that? And they were deep in thought and walking, and unbeknownst to them, Jesus came and walked with them and heard them in their dismay and confusion. And there's a moment described in in the story where he says to them, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory? And then he took them to Old Testament scripture. And I'm going to suggest, surely, Isaiah 53. And he pointed them to Old Testament scriptures that spoke of him. Wow, now, later in Luke 24, Jesus is with the broader group of disciples. And again, he's speaking to them about his work and what happened, what just happened. He's telling them all about it. And there's a moment there where where it says, Luke, as he writes it, toward the end, last paragraph or so of 24, where he says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that a wonderful thing to pray for? God, open my mind And that's what he did for them. And again, I say surely an understanding of Isaiah 53 was a part of it. Um, But the New Testament believers understood 
something that we would be well to understand is that in this Old Testament text, Christ is lifted up 700 years, more than 700 years before Jesus was even born. Can you imagine? Now, we have said in our study through Isaiah that there are several servant songs, okay? Four, to be exact. A servant song is it's one of those things where, where, you, where as you listen to the voice of the prophet, you, you're captured and you say, wait a minute, something else is going on. And, and now, servant, as you know in Isaiah, is used sometimes of the nation of Israel. Sometimes it is used of Cyrus, the Persian uh, general who was to come another hundred years later after this writing. But there's also this other servant who shows up, as in this text, that causes a person to say, as the Ethiopian man, of whom is he speaking? Who is this? Who is this? Now, this text is the fourth of the four servant songs, the, the ultimate, if you will, and structure. Some of you love this stuff, some of you less. 15 verses from chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53, verse 12, there are five sections of three verses apiece that tell the story of Jesus. It's, it's a unit. And so that's how we're going to address it. 15 verses. It's like if it's a hymn, there are five stanzas of three verses apiece that, that walk you through the story of Jesus. Now, what I want to do is read this. And again, just to allow the text to, to, to capture us. And then I will say just a few things about it this morning. Let's hear the word of God together then. Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13, God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he Sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not 
his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I come to a text like that and pause um, to think that I could add anything to the text. That isn't my intent. Uh, I, I think of the book of James, chapter 3, where there's a reminder to those who preach and teach of greater accountability. And I remember Ephesians 3 where the Apostle Paul speaks with with great gratefulness that for the grace given to him to preach among the nations, the unfathomable, he calls it, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's captured by the, the privilege of speaking of Jesus. And so it is ours to do today as well. So five stanzas, three verses apiece, I won't be intending to drain, so to speak, all that there is in the text, certainly, but a few comments under each wanting to point us to Jesus. Now, in 52, verse 13, the text begins on a high note. It does. You wouldn't know by the first sentence what is to follow. It says, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, period. Stop there. This is going to be a great story. Man, the king's going to go. He's going to reign on the throne. Everybody's going to love him. I mean, lifted up and high and, wow, exalted? This is going to be great. And, and then it goes, may I say, downhill from there. Now, interestingly, uh, the text ends, if you look at chapter 53 and verse 12, it's starting to return to a high note again, the pleasure of the Lord, the pleasure of God uh, poured out on this servant. So it's, it's kind of like um, uh, bookends, if you will, a high note and then difficulty and then a high note. And one quickly is realizing, as we all must, that, that the middle part that speaks of the humiliation of Christ and his bearing of our sin. This is what it is to be high and lifted up. 
It isn't that there was something terrible happened. Well, it was. But, but high and lifted up and exalted means to go low and to be a sin bearer. Now, there have been some down through the years who have attempted to see in those terms, especially the, the death and resurrection and exaltation of Christ as ascension to heaven, high, lifted up, and exalted. Okay, others have tried to identify those three terms with other elements of the life and the passion of Christ. I think perhaps working a little hard at it, but nonetheless, I, I resonate with the intent. Something to say, what is this about? High, lifted up. And of course, you notice the title I've given my thoughts this morning, The Glory of the Suffering Servant. I've wanted to capture some element of that as well. Well, reality then quickly follows that uh, wonderful statement to open. As verse 14 comes, and then into verse 15 we're, we're met with a Savior who has received a beating that changes his appearance beyond human resemblance such that people would shut their mouths in looking at him. This talking about the physical suffering of Christ prior to him being nailed, nailed to the cross, the beating that he received marred more than any man, the King James says. He was marred more than any man so he shall sprinkle many nations. Now, interesting phrase. If we're, if we're going with that as a translation, the sprinkling element, certainly it calls into mind the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals, the blood of bulls and goats, lambs was, was spilled, shed to... Now, please get this right. You've heard me say this before. Theology, good understanding of Jesus all over this text. But, but in the Old Testament, when animal sacrifices were, were presented before God, they did not pay for sin. They did not pay for sin. They covered sin until the perfect sacrifice would come. So it would be uh, theologically incorrect to speak about Old Testament sacrifices paying for their sin. That did not happen. No. Uh, Writer to the Hebrews gets it correct, of course. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. One offering for sin, paid for sin for all time. The Old Testament sacrifices covered sin until the time that the perfect sacrifice would come, namely Jesus Christ. Now, so sprinkle certainly captures that. You may have a study Bible that has a, a footnote here that with an alternate reading, some do, it's a minor thing, I suppose, but if you go with the minor reading, it could also be translated, so he shall startle, as opposed to sprinkle, many nations. I'm glad that the majority of the texts have gone with sprinkle. I think that's more capturing what's going on in the text, but if someone would argue for startle, that's not half bad either. Because of what follows, kings will shut their mouths at him. The idea that, that, that rulers would see the, the, the suffering of Christ and be humbled by it. So if one must go with startle and wants to argue for that, Merry Christmas, you can have that. But I think sprinkle, I think sprinkle uh, captures a little more the idea. The servant is high and lifted up. And even in his humiliation, his suffering and death, he is exalted. Now, 53 then, one, two, and three, this second movement, the servant is despised and rejected. 53, one, has two, what would appear to be rhetorical questions, as questions that do not demand an answer. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, if you must answer the seemingly rhetorical questions, the answer is not very many, very few. Who believed us? Not very many. 
Not very many. You remember in Luke chapter 1, as Christ is presented at the, at the temple by his mother Mary and, of course, his human father Joseph, you remember the big crowd that was there, right? Well, no. How about Simeon, the older man Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, who had been shown by God he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he comes and says, now let your servant depart in peace. You'll remember Anna, the older lady, a prophetess, she is called, also there at the time. But the big crowds you won't find. Apparently very few. 700 years have passed. Who, who, who holds on to a statement spoken 700 years ago? Indeed, that's the challenge of, of Peter in 2 Peter 3 when he talks about people like even today who say, Jesus, huh? He's coming back. He is, really? How long ago did he say that? A couple thousand years. Have you seen him yet? I haven't seen him either. And Peter addresses that thought in 2 Peter 3. Scoffers coming in, they're scoffing, saying, where's the promise of his coming? And he says, they've missed a few details. And he talks about them. They missed a couple things. He talks, wow, addresses that. Now, verse 1 then, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord speaks of God's power to save. Very interesting that the writer here would, would call us to see, please get this, in a suffering servant that we would see the power of God. Because if you look at a, a, a beaten man hanging on a cross, you wouldn't say, oh, now there's power, would you? But at that very moment, this was the power of God. As Paul talks about in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God to save us. There in that humble and humiliated, humiliated figure on the cross, Jesus, the power of God to save those who will trust him as Savior. Absolutely amazing. The Apostle Paul never gets over all of these things, the glory of Christ in the gospel. I mentioned here Romans eleven thirty three to 36. In the book of Romans, Paul is explaining the gospel for 16 chapters, and he comes to a place here in Romans 9, 10, 11, where he's talking about the sovereign hand of God in saving anybody, and he just, he gets to the end and he erupts in praise as he looks at the glory of God in the gospel. And so he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then he closes in verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Wow, to him be glory. He's looking at the gospel And then again, I reference here in front of you, 2 Corinthians 4, the top of that second page, where Paul is talking about the gospel in that chapter, and he speaks of the gospel as the gospel of the glory of Christ. Isn't that interesting? A suffering servant nailed to the cross, beaten beyond recognition, that this would be glory. Paul says it's the gospel of the glory of Christ. Wow. Verse 3 this servant, this one, multiple statements of his humiliation and his humility. I'll differentiate the two in a moment. 53 verse three, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we we esteemed him not. Humiliation, in a sense, could be described as that which happened to him. They, they humiliated him. Humility is the character quality that clothed him throughout his entire life. Humility. 
humility. Now, lest you think humility is weakness, and in our day and age, humility is not generally regarded as a character quality to emulate. Because we think of humility as weak. Humility as not standing up for your rights. And after all, that's your main job, right? Careful. Careful. No, Christ was clothed with humility. And listen, there is strength. There is profound strength in humility. Um, There's a, a moment I'm referring to here a scene from the movie Ben-Hur, the 1955-59 edition. Uh, Worth your watching all three hours and three minutes of it. And and just so you know, I have it on VHS. (laughs) Some of you maybe have not ever seen... Anyway, I'll leave it alone. I have it on VHS takes two cartridges to watch the whole thing. Uh Uh-huh. I'd loan it to you, but you probably couldn't play it. Yeah. There's a couple of moments in in this movie... Uh, Ben-Hur, that captured the the power of humility and and, and the the joy of the gospel. So so Judah Ben-Hur, innocent of charges that were trumped up against him, insurrection and so on. If you've seen the movie, if you haven't, you should see it. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. And he is is being taken away with the... He's chained to a bunch of other prisoners and they're going to the galleys, which is a death sentence. You're going to row and you're going to row and you're going to row and soon you will die. That's the end of your life. And so this group is, is, is going away. And there's a, a moment when they're, they're passing a well and they're parched and it's dry and the sun is out and people are clamoring for water as best they can. There's a gourd that's used to give water to different ones. And there's a guard who has it in for Judah Ben-Hur. And so when it, the water is being passed around, he says, no water for this man. That's our hero. And in despair, he'd been so looking forward to water and everybody around him is drinking. He, he collapses to the ground. Kind of with that, it's over. It's a, why go to the galleys to die there? And he, he falls to the ground, and in that moment, a, sh- a shadow comes over him. And he's, it, it's Christ, as you'll discover later. Christ, the sun behind him, so the shadow uh, coming this way. He, he has the gourd of water. The guard has walked away. He pours the water over ben, Judah Ben-Hur's face, and, and, and he wakes up uh, shocked that someone's being kind. He sees a stranger, a kind stranger, who brings the gourd to his mouth, helps him to drink. He drinks like a, like, like a, you know, a dying man. Moments later, the guard, who has stepped away, turns around and says, hey, I said no water for this man. And he starts to approach with his whip toward Christ and Judah and her. And there's a moment as Christ turns, it stands, and thus looks at him. And the guard, you can't see it, but I'm confident their eyes lock, and he is undone. He, he, he looks, looks down, looks again, and turns away. Now, Judah Ben-Hur at that moment does not know who this man is who has been kind, this kind stranger who has saved him. The movie goes on, and I'll skip all the details of it, but if you go to the, to the end, when Christ is then on the Via Dolorosa going to the cross, collapses on the ground, Judah Ben-Hur in the crowd, and sees this stranger having been beaten, and says, that's the man. That's the one who helped me, and gets water in, in a reciprocal move to bring to Jesus. Doesn't pick up the cross that belongs to someone else, but he brings water to the one who brought water to him. But the moment when he stands 
And, and rather than looking at the garden saying, knock it off, or, you know, any kind of a big old power move, you know, he is clothed with humility, the power of humility, as he looks at the guard. And the guard is done. It's an interesting moment where humility, again, humiliation is what Christ received. Humility is what covered him. This one who is despised and rejected by men. Clothed in humility. Now, moving to the next section. The servant pierced for our transgressions. Pierced for our transgressions. Verses 4 through 6. May I just say, if this old text is the Holy of Holies, this is the, then this would be the uh, mercy seat. This would be the heart of it all. If you've not memorized 4 through 6, maybe even indeed all 15 verses of this, you really should get after it. Like, what are you waiting for? Uh, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 should be second language to you right after John 3, 16. Here is the gospel. You'll notice 10, 10 first-person plural pronouns. That would be we and our emphasizing in case you miss it, for whom Christ is suffering and dying. And you'll notice his actions. So as I read it again, hear those those emphases. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I mentioned here the important theological idea that is being shouted here to us is substitution substitution. In my place, condemned, he stood. You're supposed to get that message here. Ten times the prophet gives us this admonition. It was for us. He died in our place. It's the beating and the suffering and the being afflicted that you and I deserve. But there is a terrible miscarriage of justice. It is. The innocent one is punished, and the guilty go free. I say a miscarriage of justice in human terms, not in God's terms, because as Jesus, the representative one for us, the only perfect one, as he dies on the cross, the innocent one carries the weight of our sin, yours and mine. He died, listen, In our place, he died in your place. You're supposed to get that message. What he did is repeated. It's all those different ways, kind of saying the same thing. He bore our sins. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God, the wrath of God against sin, pierced, crushed. The the terms continue. The iniquity of us all. The message of the Bible is that all of us, as in verse 6, are sinners by birth and by choice. By birth, meaning that since Adam, as Paul would say later, book of Romans chapter 5, as in Adam all die, 
So also in Christ, all be made alive. That might be 1 Corinthians 15. But in Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned, they as our representative head, federal head of the race, plunged the entire human race, all who would follow, to be born with, with, with sin, affected and infected by sin. You do not become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Does this make sense? Now, every one of us, affected and infected by sin, sinners by birth and sinners by choice, sinners by choice. And there are times when we love it so. And be careful that you don't say, not me. Oh, really? There are times we sin and we love it so. So now, sin. The Bible talks about um, uh, total depravity. It's an interesting term theologians have used to try to capture what the Bible says about sin. The, uh, the doctrine of total depravity often misunderstood. People often look at that and say, total depravity? Come on. There are people who are really totally depraved, and then there's other people like me. Uh, doctrine of total depravity misunderstood. What I mean by that is the Bible describes uh, us as being affected and infected by sin at every part of our being, our, our mind, our will, our emotions. The, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean you're as bad as you could ever be. I mean, apart from the restraint of society and laws and people who love you, you could be much worse than you currently are, given the opportunity. See? So those, those other things I mentioned, restrain. They help restrain. What would happen if my mama found out? You'll learn that young... And it has stayed with you. Yeah, what would happen? Wow, this, no, that's a bad idea. So, so we're sinners by birth, and we're sinners by choice. Total, total depravity affected apart from Christ. There is no hope for forgiveness before a holy God. None. Even if you suddenly started behaving well. Good luck with that, by the way. I'll check in with you in five minutes, and I just bet it hasn't gone well. Ah. <laughs> uh. No, we need a savior. This text speaks of an innocent one. It's significant that Christ is is innocent. We'll get to that in just a moment. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. I move to verses seven through nine. This, This shocking silence of Christ before his accusers. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This was shocking to Pilate before whom he stood. Pilate says, will you not defend yourself? Are you going to be silent? You're just going to stand there. But listen, it's a standing in silence of strength, not of weakness. We Again, we are steeped in a culture that says, pony up there and argue right back and you tell them. And I, I understand that there are times to, as Peter would say, give an apologetic for the hope that's in you and for other things. I understand that. But there are other times when it shows greater strength to, be, to act in humility and restrain yourself. If you have ever done that for a moment, you know how hard that is. When there are things you could say, but you don't. Much easier just to open the floodgates and let it out. Just hose them. Pick up the pieces later. No, no, hold on. Greater strength to shut your mouth, especially at a moment of injustice. Christ is being accused of things which he's not guilty. 
yet he opens not his mouth. As a lamb that's led to the slaughter sheep before it shears his silence, he opened not his mouth. I love the references in 6 and those 2 and 7 to lambs, of course, so picturesque of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Passover lamb reaching back to the book of Exodus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, hearing uh, John the Baptist in John one twenty nine, the Lamb of God. So the, the whole uh, body of Scripture using that analogy of sheep and lambs, why, why was it in the Old Testament with Passover? Why did they have to bring a perfect lamb? How come they couldn't bring one that was going to die anyway? It was a big deal made back in the books of Moses. Don't bring a crippled lamb. Why? Because it's looking forward to another perfect lamb. That's why. And you won't know that for, oh, I don't know, a couple thousand years. But God was painting a picture of the one to come. Bring a perfect lamb. Not one of its bones shall be broken. People said, what kind of weird rule is that? And God said, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Wait for it. Because one day another perfect lamb will come who not, have not one of his bones broken either. And even as the blood of that one lamb that was slain covered those in the house, so the blood of this other lamb will cover all those in the house. Wow. Pictures painted from beginning to end in the Bible. Great unity in the text. Christ is silent before his his accusers. Interesting. Verse 9. Go figure. They made his grave with the wicked, plural, plural term, and with the rich man, singular term, in his death. Right away, you go to the two who were crucified on each side of Jesus. They made his grave with the wicked. Yes, they took him right toward the grave and, and with the rich man, one in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, who, the rich man who gave up his tomb. No one had ever been laid there. He gave it to Jesus. It's the place where he was to be laid when he died. Joseph of Arimathea gave that honor to Christ. A rich man in his death. Yes, indeed. He is silent before his hearers. And the second half of verse 9 emphasizes the genuine innocence of Christ. Certainly, as I mentioned on your notes, essential to the gospel. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Wow. This business of being silent before accusers, of, of taking it without complaint. Again, it flies in the face of what we are urged to do and to be. Uh, to act with humility instead of out of arrogance. The power of doing so, the self-restraint of doing so. Um, This part of verse 9 is quoted in 1 Peter 2. I gave you the text, the reference there under the section called today's text. It's part of that text. It's quoted. I want to give you a quick story and commentary on that okay? His innocence. Now, back in, in, in 1979, I was 17. You can do the math. I was born in 61. Um, I was right out of high school, and I ended up as a summer staff person for a, at a camp for Native American kids up in Canada, BC. I was the youngest on the summer staff. They didn't take them that young for a lot of reasons, um, but I got in because I knew people and they needed help. So I was there at 17, younger than people coming to camp in some cases, and um, it was rough. It really was for anybody. 
uh, 17, man, I didn't quite know what I was getting into. Um, a lot of reasons for that is you think of the folks who were coming to camp and the, the, the elements uh, at the res- reservations or reserves, they call them up there, around. But the coming, and so then here's a bunch of kids, and they're going to be yours all week, morning to, to night, counselor-centered time, and they're yours for eight days at a time. And um, it was hard. You were the last to sleep, uh, midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. You're the first up. There is a meeting at 7. You're coming. Um, you're the one who in the morning when you wake up and go, let's see, how many kids wet their uh, sleeping bags last night? That smells like about three. And, and you're the one who takes it out and lays it out in the sun and takes them down to the lake to rinse off because they probably, some of them didn't have extra clothes. So you just did. You just took them down and cleaned them up. It's your job. And um, man, they're big mosquitoes in, in Canada. Do you know that? All the little ones are down here. Uh, they go up there, and I don't know what it is, but they get bigger. Um, outhouses, uh, a whole bunch of 20 on, this, on the camp. There was one shower. It was still developing. There was one shower at the time, um, and the lady counselors, we gave them deference to the shower. Uh, you clean by going in the lake, ice-cold lake. You, you just went in every day. That's why you cleaned up. And I remember really um, griping about that inwardly before the Lord. I was 17. I'm getting notes from home. We're water skiing. It's really cool. We're hanging out at the lake. And we did a lot of that with the youth group I was a part of. And I was spending time up there with these kids who were so ungrateful and stayed up all night and used foul language and all kinds of other things they brought to camp that I'm supposed to figure out as a 17-year-old. I don't know how to do this stuff. And, and man, the mosquito in the out just stinks. And, man, I've got bug bites all over me because the screens have holes in them in the little weird cabins we have. that You can't you either sleep or you don't. But you wake up in the morning, you're going to get eaten. You just know you did. What about it? And I just remember really kind of complaining before the Lord on that. And, and one day, um, 1 Peter 2, there's the text. I was, I was kids, it was, it was that sit on your bunk and be quiet time. I said it nicer sometimes. And um, that was the moment. I picked up my Bible, and you're supposed to read some of this, so I did. And I read 1, Timothy, or sorry, 1 Peter 2 at verse 21 where it says this, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It was first, it was first Peter 2 referencing the story of Jesus in Isaiah 53. And at 17, I read that and I've never forgotten it. To this you were called, oh Lord, because Christ suffered for me. I thought the mosquitoes were bad. Well, you know, Christ went to the cross for me, and I'm bugged about outhouses. Seriously, Mosser, put on your big boy pants. And it was a rebuke from the Lord. Summer was not over. There was more. You send the kids home. You have two days to turn the camp around. That's when you did your own laundry, the laundromat in town, and you clean up the camp. And you do it again and again and again all summer long. I'll never forget that. Isaiah 53, as quoted by Peter, as he says to this, you were called. No, shut your mouth in defending yourself. Quit talking about what you deserve. Just stop. Because somebody suffered for you. Humility. Humility. Quit talking about what you have coming to you. Don't treat me like that. Really, Jesus could have said. Really? Wow. Christ was silent before his accusers. Verses um, 10 through 12, as we head toward a close. 10 to 12. 
New Testament theology explodes from the text. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, I think the he here is God the Father, shall see and be satisfied. This is the New Testament doctrine of propitiation. Christ satisfying the the just wrath of a holy God, drinking the cup. He shall see it and be satisfied. By this, his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. Substitution again. He shall bear their iniquities. Do you see the, the, the innocent one carrying the guilt and many accounted righteous? That is those who trust Christ as Savior accounted as righteous in the sight of God. This is justification. New Testament doctrine, cool New Testament word. Christ, his righteousness counted to me. It says that. They make many to be accounted righteous. I... And you, who are not righteous, counted as righteous before a holy God. Can you imagine? Wow. Some of us have suffered injustice. Some egregiously so. Some that bring, brings tears and agony to you. Injustice. May I just say this? Your Savior Jesus suffered injustice too even more than you have because he was truly innocent unlike us. He knows more about injustice than do you and I. He, he was the ultimate example of this. The servant I have here crushed, counted with transgressors. Transgressors. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was profoundly Godward. He satisfied the just wrath of God against sin. This is propitiation. Godward. By Godward, I mean this. Is Christ hung and died on the cross. I know it's, it's cute today to say, well, he thought of me. Well, perhaps so, but let me say this. He thought of his father first. The death of Jesus on the Christ was first God word. You know, I, much of modern uh, songs and things like that, thought says that as Jesus died on the cross, he had my name uh, or my face in front of him. I cringe at that because I think it, 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 it begins to humanize the gospel. I, it, I, I just... Anyway, I won't pick on that if that's a cool thing for you, but I will say this. The death of Jesus on the cross was Godward. His face was lifted this way. All the statements on the cross weren't about Jay, okay? Uh, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Why have you forsaken me? His thought is here. His death on the cross was profoundly Godward, first of all. Applied, yes, to me as one who believes, but I will hold back. It does not give me joy to think he, I want him to think of his father. I want him to think of satisfaction taking place for my guilt. I will, I will, I will be happy with that. I don't think he needs to be muttering my name on his lips as he dies on the ground. Jay, this is free. Oh, no, you're busy satisfying the father's wrath. Do that. Do it well. I'll, I'll come later. The servant crushed, counted with transgressions. The, uh, my final comment there. He poured out his soul to death, it says in verse 12. How, how could he, back in verse 10, how could he see his offspring and prolong his days? How can you speak of this one after he has poured out his soul to death? Unless by some chance he beats death. That would be weird. It's called resurrection. I think hidden in this chapter are hints of resurrection. 
Do people who know you see you as a humble person? Do they? Do people who know you see you as a humble person? Or do they see you as kind of more about you? Or do you make life all about you? True humility is is great strength, great strength. It's like Christ. Philippians 2, it's like him, John 13, as he washes the disciples' feet. Humility that at times, as Jesus, could say some things, chooses not to. In great strength, holds it back and says, no. No, I could really get you. But not today. Humility. Humility. Do people who know you know that of you? That's strength. And maybe I just say at the close, the early followers of Jesus saw this text Christologically, it's Jesus. And do you see it? And do you rejoice in it in saving faith as well? Would you stand with me? I want to pray that God will make it so for us. It is my deep longing that as we hear a text like this, our hearts would be drawn to Christ. If you are here and have never trusted Christ as your Savior, I I would so desire that you would look at this text and say, this he did for me, and call out to God and say, I believe Jesus died in my place. And if you are one who has already done that, it would be my great joy to know that you see this text and you see Christ here and your soul finds glory in it. Great glory. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. We are humbled by what is before us. And so, Father, would you, would you take your word and multiply it by the work of the Spirit of God that we would be more like Christ and that we would love him more than we do. Thank you for this, your word, in Jesus' name, amen.